This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Back Talk from Bitch Media, Radio Dispatch, On the Media, This Week in Blackness, Vox, The Black Agenda Report, Last Week Tonight, All In with Chris Hayes, and To the Point. On Friday's show, we talked about Rachel Dolezal and how she had faked her identity. She apparently is white, but she went around basically pretending to be African-American. We declared her not guilty because we thought her intent was overall good. She was trying to do right by the African-American community. She worked at NAACP in Spokane, Washington, and they were happy with her, and they stood by her, and they still stand by her, although she has now resigned. I am here to tell you that I am switching my vote to guilty, and I want to explain why. Uh, first of all, something we already knew uh, from Friday, uh, in explaining why she was calling herself black, basically, she said, quote, we're all from the African continent. Okay, that's incredible weak sauce. I let it slide on Friday, but that is ridiculous. Uh, it gives you a sense of the different lies that this woman has weaved. Okay, but now let's talk about the substance of it and why it does matter that she was going around pretending to be black. So, first of all, she uh, apparently represented herself as black when applying to Howard University, a traditionally black university. Wait, now that's serious, right? Because you're misrepresenting yourself. Could you be taking someone else's spot? It's possible. It's not like white people can't go to Howard University. She could have just simply applied as white. Now, Washington Post talked to her dad about it, and this is how he characterized it. They explained, when Rachel applied to Howard University to study art with a portfolio of quote, exclusively African-American portrait, the university, according to her dad, took her for a black woman and gave her her, her a full scholarship. Okay, getting a full scholarship when the university thinks you're African-American, okay, that's strike one. That's not good. That, that misrepresentation has consequences and has effects. Now, it gets worse. Today we find out from the smoking gun that she then later sued Howard University for discriminating against her as a white woman. What? In the lawsuit, she alleges Smith, uh, which is one of the faculty members there, and other school officials improperly blocked her appointment to a teaching assistant post, rejected her application for postgraduate instructorship, and denied her scholarship aid while she was a student. She says all that because she was white. And well, you can't apply representing yourself as black. Now, it's unclear whether she checked off that box at her Howard University application, but she presented uh, her African-American, basically, background, her African-American artwork, etc. According to her dad, represented herself as an African-American. Then she sues them because you, they discriminated against her for being white. Come on, strike two, right? Okay, now, she also has a rich history of uh, claiming to be a victim of a number of hate crimes, according to the Washington Post and everybody else covering this. Okay, now, when you look into those hate crimes... It gets dicier. Now, this is because she's theoretically black, although she's not. Okay, so, in one case, when she's working at the NAACP, she claims that she got hate mail directed to her. Interesting. Here's the Washington Post explaining. Postal workers, meanwhile, told police that hate mail that Dolezal says she received at the NAACP's post office box in Spokane was not processed by a post office, as it had no date stamp or barcode, Postal workers suggested the mail was put there by someone with a key to the box. Oh, boy. Now, they go on to explain that, hey, that same letter was sent to other people as well, so maybe somebody was sending it around. But that's your first red flag to cuckoo land, okay? And again, claiming that you got 
uh, you were the victim of racial harassment because you're black, when you're not black, we're in really dicey waters here. Okay, but that's not the only place. Kurt Neumeyer was a board member on the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations, where she also served at one time. Neumeyer said he was suspicious of several incidents, those all reported in Cordalan, including her discovery of a swastika on the door of the Human Rights Education Institute when the organization's security camera was mysteriously turned off. Whoa! Now that's two separate incidents where, oh golly gee, we can't figure out who did it, but it looks like an inside job, and those are really bad. You don't have, it's not a strike yet, because you don't have enough info on it. Those things never got adjudicated. Uh, uh, but Kurt Neumeyer continues by saying, in all these incidents, she reported in Cour uh, she was the sole witness to events that, when put under scrutiny, don't hold up. It's not good. Okay? Now, even if you don't want to give her a strike on that, well, let's go to strike number three. The city of Spokane is also investigating whether, whether Dolezal uh, misidentified her race in an application of the Office of Police Ombudsman Commission on which she serves. Dolezal says she had several ethnic origins on the application, including white, black, and American Indian. She might have traces of American Indian blood, uh, but she's not at all black. So that is a violation, that's a lie, and that has material impact on whether she would have gotten that job or if someone else who actually was black might have gotten that job. Strike three in Europe, right? Now, to add just a little extra on top when we don't have to, we go to one of her brothers. Now, there's a big family rift. That's part of the reason why her uh, parents uh, came forward and told her they're in a dispute over uh, custody of one of her uh, uh, adopted brothers, which she's now taken on and pretended is her own kid. Scott, this woman's got issues. There's no question about that, right? We knew on Friday she had issues. The question is, did it have consequences or was just she intending to do well, right? But we go to Ezra Dolezal, and again, Washington Post explains here. Back in the early 1900s, he says, what she would, what she did would be considered highly racist, who described himself as 25% black. He added, you really should not do that. It's completely opposite. She's basically creating more racism. Now, what Ezra was referring to there, and that's, again, this is a different adopted brother that she had, not the one she wound up uh, taking custody over. He's on the side against her in the family, part of the family who disagrees with her. He said, basically, she lived like she was in blackface. When people go in blackface for one night or one time on Halloween or whatever it might be, people are outraged by that as well they should. She lived in blackface. He's like, think about how offensive that is. I was like, whoa, that is an excellent point. Now, when you consider all that, the new verdict is fairly clear. Guilty. No. Her actions had consequences. They were real, and they were damaging. She should not have done any of this. And the good works that she did at the NAACP are great. Perhaps she, she, she did them, but they don't solve the underlying problem here which is that she pretended to be something she's not, and it was hurtful. Feel my skin is rough, but it can't be cleansed. It can't be cleansed. Oh, my arms are tough, but they can't be bent. They can't be bent. And I want 
you've been studying this whole issue of uh, of race and gender and identity. Your reaction to this latest controversy? <laughs> well, I think it has become such a big issue because it taps into a certain zeitgeist going on in the country. We more and more people now realize that race is not biological. There's no DNA of race. And so it's socially constructed. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say it's socially constructed? Uh, there's a lot of confusion around that. And when she says things like, you know, it's complicated, people are not sure how to make sense of that. But what it means to say it's socially constructed is that it's socially constructed. It's not individually constructed. It's based in social customs and practices and histories. And so, you know, we have decided together that a piece of paper counts as a dollar. Everybody has to agree to that or it's not going to work. That's what social construction means. And we have to then think about what are the political conditions by which our racial practices have been socially constructed. Who has participated in that and who has not been able to participate in that? And how is, you know, how has it been constructed for what end, for what purpose? And I think also we have to realize that um, because identities like race are socially constructed, they can be socially constructed in different ways in different contexts. I know you're going to cover the Dominican Republic later today. Um, in the United States, we have usually lineage which trumps all other considerations. If you have one drop of lineage way, way, way back, that trumps all other considerations. And a lot of parts of Latin America, appearance trumps lineage. So to say if, if you're light-skinned, you're blanco, and what it means to be blanco is to be light-skinned. It's, it's appearance. The joke is, you know, that in the DR, they have sort of the reverse one-drop rule. One drop of white blood makes you white, whereas in the United States, it's the reverse. So con contexts make a difference. You're a Panamanian American. Yes, yes, and, and in much of Latin America, appearance works. So you have three different uh, way uh, criteria that can work to to create race: lineage, appearance, and cultural assimilation. There are some indigenous groups that use cultural assimilation. I think if you talk like a group, if you have accepted their ways and their belief systems, that you can be a full member of that group. And this is the kind of thing that Dolajal is kind of making, you know, reference to. She's claiming a kind of cultural assimilation. But we know that she was presenting herself as black and relying on the fact that people around her were assuming that meant lineage. She may herself have been, you know, wanting to use this definition of cultural assimilation, but she was playing on the fact that in the United States it's lineage, and that's what people are assuming, and she had to know that. We talked to Tammy Winfrey Harris, who's a longtime bitch contributor, um, and she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and the op-ed was called Black Like Who? Rachel Dolezal's Harmful Masquerade. And we asked her to read uh, a short excerpt from the end of her piece, and here it is. In the days since this story broke, many people have been quick to point out that race is merely a social construct, as if 
that fact changes the very real impact of race on the lives of minorities. The persistence of systemic racism means there are penalties for blackness in America. Black women, real ones, live at the nexus of that oppression and enduring sexism. The gender pay gap is steeper for them. They are more likely than their white counterparts to live in poverty, to be victims of domestic homicide and sexual assault. If Taisha Miller and Rakia Boyd, black women who were victims of extrajudicial violence, had been able to slide into whiteness just for a moment, they might still be alive. Perplexingly, Ms. Dolezal told Matt Lauer that her decision to identify as black was a matter of survival. That is rich indeed. But racial oppression is not as easy to shrug off as racial advantage. This is partly because America has spent centuries ensuring that certain people can never be white. Being able to shift one's race is a privilege. Ms. Dolezal's masquerade illustrates that however much she may empathize with African Americans, she is not one. Because black people in America cannot shed their race. We cannot proclaim the black race a nebulous concept while strictly policing whiteness and the privileges of that identity. I will accept Ms. Dolezal as black like me only when society can accept me as white like her. Anything is hard to If you're starting a business or otherwise looking to get online quickly and easily, GoDaddy.com can help with their new Get Online Today toolkit. You can get a domain name, a professional website, and email powered by Microsoft Office 365, all for $1 a month with the purchase of an annual plan. And the cost of web hosting is totally free. It's easy to get set up, but if you have any issues, GoDaddy provides award-winning phone and chat support 24-7. So if there's anything you need, just call. Check out the Get Online Today toolkit at godaddy.com slash left. That's godaddy.com slash left. The domain name is included with an annual plan only. See site for details. There were all kinds of just molten hot takes about drawing really unnecessary and unneeded and terrible, in I think every case, comparisons between Rachel Dolezal and Caitlyn Jenner. And, and trans people in general. And trans people in general. Caitlyn Jenner being the example because she's in the news right now. Yeah, and my stance is leave trans people out of this. Yeah. <laughs> that, this has nothing to do with trans people. Zero. We did years ago, back in 2013, I actually found the email, but I think we'll have to save it for another day. But years ago, uh, we had this conversation here on Radio Dispatch because there was a, and I remember the origin of it was this deep green resistance person who identified not as white but as green. Yes, 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 I do remember that. And somebody wrote in and asked us, like, the way that 
trans people can be assigned a gender at birth and identify uh, as another gender and be another gender does it work that way with race to which the overwhelming response was and not not you know not hating on that person for asking the question like okay let's yes let's we talk about race, we talk about gender, let's think about it, um, and that there are, uh, for many, many reasons, race and gender both are aspects of identity, but have very different political and social and personal, they're two different things, right? Mm-hmm. And so that there, and a direct analogy there is not only, it's, it's not right, it's not needed, and especially the way, the entire premise that people, you know, in the, in the wake of Dolezal have been doing this is this completely false premise of, well, we accept people who say that their gender identity is different than, um, you know, that we accept Caitlyn Jenner, so why don't we accept Rachel Dolezal? To which I want to say, we don't accept Caitlyn Jenner. What do you mean we accept? Stop, let me stop you right there. Do you mean in terms of housing, uh, equality, lack of housing discrimination, lack of employment discrimination, lack of police discrimination, access to mental health care, access to physical health care. Absolutely not. There's no way that we accept trans people. So that's one thing. And also, again, it's just, you know, I feel like Parker tweeted, Parker Marie Malloy tweeted, this being trans is something that is recognized by like every major medical association, right? This is real. And to just say like, well, this one person pretending to be black, how is that not the same? as, you know, these millions of people, again, who are recognized by every single established medical organization as, as you know, as being real, as existing, to compare this woman who is uh, who seems uh, by all accounts to be a pathological liar uh even if she does think she's black or identify as black that's a, just a completely different thing and so i think that if it's possible to have this we should we can have a conversation about the different about how race is different than gender like let's have that conversation but all of these conversations that's like well like let's find the common ground it, it, as i've seen them they've all been clumsy at best and really like delegitimizing, devaluing, and disrespectful to trans people at, at worst. Yeah, and it misunderstands trans identity as, like, it's like when people say she wants right. to yes. dress as a woman right. or something like that, right. which which is, it's not only a matter of grammar or pronouns or whatever. It's that you're actually describing somebody in a completely incorrect way. Right. right. Somebody is a woman. Right. And that's what you have to use as a starting point. Exactly. And not this sort of like, so-and-so wants to be a woman. Right. And so that's why they're dressing like this or, have, you know, uh, you know, that's why we're supposed to use female pronouns or whatever. Right. It's that they are a woman. And not that they, not even that they feel like, I think a exactly. lot of well-intentioned people are being like, well, you know, trans people feel like a different gender and as i mean i only know this because of radio dispatch listeners it's not feels like it i am a different gender you are a different gender right yeah. it's a it's a matter of being who you are not feeling not wanting right which is yeah that's a extremely important distinction Closing in from every corner And the rain pours down Too afraid to look over your shoulder Casting shadows from beneath the stairs And it seems that there's no explanation Breathing heavy, you're afraid and you're scared There are ropes attached to hinges that will latch them open the door 
from WNYC in New York. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Something monstrous happened again. On Wednesday night in South Carolina, a white man, identified as 21-year-old Dylan Storm Roth, sat quietly for an hour in a Bible study group at Charleston's legendary Emmanuel AME Church. According to one account, he chose the seat next to its widely respected pastor, Clementa Pinckney, who became a state representative at 23, a state senator at 27, and a beloved community leader his whole life. Also there, Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, a high school track coach and speech therapist. Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, who sang in the choir. Lifelong librarian Cynthia Hurd, Allen University graduate Taiwanza Sanders, and Mira Thompson, who was leading the group that night. Ministry staffer Reverend Daniel Simmons, and church custodian Ethel Lance, and her cousin, church patron Susie Jackson, who was 87. Dylan Storm Roth killed them all. Her son was trying to talk him out of um, doing that act of um, killing people. And he, he just said, I have to do it. He said, um, you rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. That's Pastor Pinckney's cousin, Sylvia Johnson, conveying an eyewitness account. If that's what Roth said, he disclosed a historic delusion. Sexual predation is a perennial pretext for the murder of black people. A man named Jeff Brown in 1916 was running through Cedar Bluff, Mississippi to catch a train. He bumped into a white girl and he was lynched. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. The idea that he had someplace important to be that might cause him to even casually bump into this white woman was an offense of disorder, and so he was lynched. That kind of violence, that kind of oppression was being enforced only because there was this system that did deputize every white person to engage in this kind of subordination. The truth is, we wondered whether even to cover the tragedy in Charleston. We'd covered so many of the same issues increasingly and recently, such as the media's rules for different races. If Roth were Muslim, he would have been identified swiftly and universally as a terrorist. Reporters would focus on his recruiters, which in his case could be a multitude of white supremacist websites or one of the many hate groups that exist legally in his own state. But when the suspect is white, he's an aberration, immediately furnished with a name and a family, a history and a diagnosis. Whereas a black suspect, for instance, accused of far less or nothing, more often is displayed as a nameless emblem of a social disease. What's significant about that is that when you have a named white person as a suspect, the problem and the crime becomes more localized. You can associate it with that individual. When you have unnamed suspects, you know, it tends to feed into this stereotype, you know, the myth of a dangerous black man. Just two weeks ago, Nazgul Gadnush of the Sentencing Project told us that research found that the media focused on black-on-white crime, though most crimes actually are perpetrated by people of the same race on each other, and also that the media give disproportionate attention to the exceedingly rare instance of black crime on white women. 
These disparities have been found in major news outlets, especially in television. So this does a double disservice to the general public because people get an exaggerated understanding of how much crime is committed by African Americans and they get an exaggerated sense of how likely they are to be victims of those crimes and they don't have a clear understanding of how often African Americans are victims of these crimes. We've seen the inevitable effort by Fox News to cast doubt on the obvious and undeniable Roth's explicit motivation. Is it about Christians? Is it about white black? Is it about I hate South Carolina? And it, extraordinarily, they called it a hate crime. Uh, and some look at it as, well, it's because it was a white guy, apparently, and a black church. Uh, but you made a great point just a moment ago about the hostility toward Christians. So, per And it was a church. So maybe that's what they're talking about. They haven't explained it to us. What a waste of air. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidates sent their condolences but skirted the issue of race or guns. For instance, Rick Santorum called it an assault on religious liberty, and Rand Paul called it the result of a sickness the government could not fix. But guns did get some airtime. Once again, innocent people were killed in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun. Now is the time for mourning and for healing. But let's be clear. At some point, we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. It doesn't happen in other places with this kind of frequency. And it is in our power to do something about it. I say that recognizing the politics in this town uh, foreclose a lot of those avenues right now. But it'd be wrong for us not to acknowledge it. Right to carry advocates say that the problem was that the church was a gun-free zone, like Sandy Hook was a gun-free zone. That if everyone everywhere had a gun, there would be fewer such tragedies. The facts dispute this, but whatever. And of course, race came up. It had to. The shooter wore racist insignia on his Facebook page, and his target was profoundly symbolic. The Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded in 1816, when local laws limited black prayer services to daylight hours, prohibited black literacy, and subjected defiant church leaders to the lash. In 1822, a church founder, Denmark Vesey, planned a slave revolt and was executed for it. The plot prompted the construction of the Citadel, the state military college, built with its guns facing the church. Finally, the church was burned to the ground and all black churches were banned. Church members met in secret for more than 30 years. After the Civil War, the church was rebuilt. Booker T. Washington spoke there, and Martin Luther King, and Pastor Clementa Pinckney, murdered on Wednesday. Many of us don't see ourselves as just a place where we come and worship, but as, as a beacon and as a bearer of the culture and a bearer of what makes us a people. But I like to say that uh, this is not necessarily unique to us. It's really what America is all about. Still, we wondered what was left for us to say. 
the media, the mainstream, and the fringe had merely gone through their usual paces. Could we not argue that America is about freedom, whether we live it out or not, but it really is about freedom, equality, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's what church is all about. Freedom to worship and freedom from sin, freedom to be full what God intends us to be, and to have equality in the sight of God. And, and sometimes you got to make noise to do that. Sometimes you may have to die like Denmark Vesey to do that. And then there was that anniversary, the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth was Friday. June 19th, 1865, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Major General Gordon Granger took Union control of Texas and freed the state's quarter million slaves. Two and a half years it took for the slaves and the slave owners to get that message delivered with the possibility of force. We don't like to see our church as a museum, but as still a place of change and still a place where we can hopefully work on the hearts and minds and spirits of all people. Ralph Ellison, in his novel Juneteenth, called the holiday the celebration of a gaudy illusion. He also wrote, nothing ever stops. It divides and multiplies, and I guess sometimes it gets ground down super fine. But it doesn't just blow away. So that's why we weighed in. Attention must be paid. Gotta keep grinding it down. And maybe someday it will blow away. We're talking about this, and, and, and they are writing about Dylan Stormroof, right? And they're talking about what he, uh, what he, uh, he did, and, and they're talking to some of his, uh, his, uh, old friends or people who knew him. And here is the quote from what they, they said. And by the way, once they changed this quote, they also did not, uh, actively change what, um, they didn't actually acknowledge what they changed. Because normally when you change uh, uh, portions, you have to say updated to include, blah, 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 all this stuff. So when I wake up this morning, I'm, I'm, I, cause I, I couldn't even go to sleep last night. I like, I was pacing. I, I, I was having an, I was so bugged by this that for at least the first three hours after knowing about this, I'm just staring at my computer screen. I'm, I'm tweeting, but I'm not tweeting. You know what I mean? Cause I don't know how to, I quite parse this and I, I I knew something was wrong because I I was angry and I was I was angry to the point where I knew that I wasn't I wasn't going to be what people wanted to be reasonable. I didn't have it in me. And it, to a point where it was like around one o'clock in the morning, eat West Coast time, I'm pacing. My wife's already gone to sleep. I'm pacing. I can't like sit down. And I had I, I said out loud to myself, like I had to, I said, So we've been compromised. And I, after I said it out loud, my brain was like, oh, 
because I was trying to hold it together and like, cause I was like, I was angry and I'm, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to hold it together. I don't have a reasonable response to this. I want to curse and scream at people. I want to yell that you've been ignoring the plight and suffering of black folks forever. That you, like, literally, as this, this happens right after we watched and uh, watched a bunch of folks, black and white, basically tell Negroes that our identity is not even real and that we should just let that go and that like, it's like, oh, whatever, white folks, like, you guys are the problems and like, maybe you should uh, just accept folks and it's like, like someone said identify is black but then at the same time all of a sudden it is very clear that it's like oh does does when you identify with blackness do you do you get shot up in a church is that the same does that work for you as well and so i'm just angry and i and i and i realize i'm not being reasonable so i had to like just like <laughs> give myself the verbal cue to like tap out elon tap out and so i i get up this morning and i see this in the, in the daily beast nor did Ruth make a habit of spouting racist messages. Quote from the dude who knew him, I've never heard him say anything, but just he had a kind of su- had that kind of Southern pride. I guess some would say strong conservative beliefs, he said. He made a lot of racist jokes, but you don't really take them seriously like that. You don't really think of it like that. But now, but now, quote, the things he said were kind of not joking. Like, this is what we, we get into this conversation. What is racism? If all you do is make racist jokes, how is that not racist? You are fucking racist! To the point where, to the point where they specifically, specifically, here's, and, and the writer of the, of this thing didn't even understand what they were writing. Like, an editor, no, no one who looked at this was like, well, that's actually madness. You're just putting word, that's word salad. Like, you can't say he doesn't spout racist things and then say he told a bunch of racist jokes. That doesn't make sense. So they had to, they rephrased the whole thing. They said, yet Ruth did have a reputation for spouting racist messages. I'm like, what editor put that out? It's like, he's not, he's not mad. And so people flipped out. Like, even me pointing it out, there was like, I don't know, almost 500 retweets of them just going, what the hell is this? <laughs> I don't... And so, understand how trauma works. The traumatic thing happens, especially, like, I want to talk about, like, the trauma of blackness in America. This Something horrible happens. And now, mind you, this is after just day-to-day traumatic bullshit, microaggressions happening regularly on a regular basis... Something traumatic happens. Terrible. It shrinks to the core of the uh, uh, of blackness of of of, of being black in America. It just strikes to the core of it. And then, as you're grieving, because there's no there's no parsing of what happened. It's like white dude walks into church, kills a bunch of people, tells them he's it's because they're black and they're raping our our, our women and, and taking over our country. Let's one person go. So as long as you tell the story and then runs like this was just, this these are all just the facts that you have. It almost it, it echoes within your soul. It reminds you of a time that literally we were, we studied as children and were told that this is this is no longer the case because Martin Luther King uh, went on the cross and died for our sins. Like that's basically the argument they make for yeah. you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of watching something in real life and you don't know how to deal with it. You're like, but this is not real. 
Because this is what they told us happened, but we, it's all long gone. Because we sang Kumbaya and we marched. And, and because we still today there are white people telling you this is about Christianity or this isn't about race or this is about a mentally ill black kid. At the same time that we have to deal with the fact that we are experiencing this tragedy, we also have to defend our right for these emotions. According to Mashable, uh, from Kaki, yeah. Yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, someone who actually was, uh, was, was uh, actually posted a Snapchat in the middle of the, at the church during that the whole problem. The youngest victim before the attack. Right before he, before, right before they were murdered and posted yeah. a Snapchat. So that's, but this is, so in that, so you have this trauma that's this thing that you know clearly it's you and media then takes that trauma and they multiply it because it's one thing to be told to, 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 to understand that you're, place within your society is already not considered equal to others. And whether or not you were like, but we have equality. Yeah, you say that, but guess what? When the cops show up, let's see how equal everything is. So you already have that issue. You're, you're already dealing with that, right? And then media takes the story, and this is the thing here, and I think, I think that's what's, what's breaking me more than anything, is that there isn't a gray area in this discussion. There isn't two sides of the discussion. There isn't a, well, what about this? Maybe he charged the cops. There's no possible, possible gray area. There's no doubt to be had. He killed people, went on the run. We know this is it's all facts. And even now, the media will still tiptoe and not deal with the reality. So if you kill us, if you come into our, our places of worship, kill us. Tell us you're going to kill us because we're black. And then, at the end of it, society and media still goes, well, why is this? We don't know the situation. At that point, it tells us, you. there's no way I can possibly convince you that this is a real situation. If you don't understand when someone comes into the church and murders, a massacre occurs. Something this should this should literally be the the darkest day of the of years now, and you're still having the conversation about what might this mean? He was just probably mentally ill. At this point, we know you don't give a fuck about us, and there's nothing we could do. There's no I mean, and so like everyone we ha- we have to be peaceful. Oh, really? Because you know, you mean having like, a peaceful pool party? No, or or maybe I don't know, going to Bible study. So <laughs> you. So you're telling us that no matter what the situation is, no matter what happens to us, you're still going to question it and go, nah, we don't really know what's happening. What's the situation here? We can't, there's, there's no discussion. At this point, like, literally, it's, it's, I think that's my, 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 my break point. There's no discussion, yet you guys want to debate shit, and I'm not here to debate you about this. I'm not here to debate the reality of our humanity. I'm not here to debate the oppression that is placed upon our community regular on a regular basis. I'm not here for this. And you, you now we should have this discussion. I, literally, I saw people on Twitter arguing whether or not the guy was white. Oh my he doesn't God. really look white. A dose of white supremacy. A dose of white supremacy. They keep on, 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 they keep on,
Black day, black cloud, black cat, devils, food, angels, too, yeah, yeah. Black Jesus, black Jesus, black To a lot of prominent people, the attack that killed nine members of Charleston's Emanuel AME Church on Wednesday night Ruth is charged with nine counts of murder. was shocking and inexplicable. Yeah, I can't explain this. I don't know what would make a young man at 21 get so sick and twisted to kill nine people in a church. The gunman's horrifying attack on faith, killing nine people, including a famed pastor. They got part of it right. Mother Emanuel is, in fact, more than a church. This is a place of worship that was founded by African Americans seeking liberty. One of the founders of the church was Denmark Vesey, who was later executed after planning to lead a slave revolt in the 1820s. The church itself was actually burned down after that as white retaliation increased, and it was banned in South Carolina after that time. The state of South Carolina, because of the work of black congregations in Charleston, fomenting this desire that all people should be free in the state, instituted a law that closed a manual. I mean, by state law, the church was closed. And it was about 40 years until the church was reestablished. That wasn't the last time the black church would be targeted by white supremacists either. In 1963, you have the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which famously killed four young girls. In the 1990s, there was a spate of mysterious fires, many of which were later found to be white supremacists targeting black churches. The reason the black church is a target is because of what it symbolizes. Well, many of us don't see ourselves as just a place where we come and worship. That as a beacon and as a, a, a bearer of the culture uh, and, and a bearer of what makes us a people. To white supremacists, any pride in black identity has been a reason to retaliate with violence. And throughout American history, that's just what they've done. In South Carolina alone, from 1866 to 1868, the federal government compiled reports of 130 attacks on freedmen and elected officials. And many of those attacks, especially intimidating voters and would-be voters, were orchestrated by the Ku Klux Klan. That led to, essentially, the nation's first anti-terrorism law. The Enforcement Act of 1871, which is often called the Ku Klux Klan Act, made it a felony to use force, intimidation, or threat to keep anyone from voting or participating in trials or from carrying out their duties as a government official. So, was the Charleston shooting an act of terrorism? One way to look at terrorism is the way that political scientists do. It's in the service of a very particular political ideology. In For the Klan, that's preventing black Americans from exercising their rights as citizens. For white supremacists today, it's looking to racist apartheid countries like Rhodesia or apartheid South Africa as models for what we should be doing here in the States. That might be the reason that we saw those patches on the jacket of the alleged Charleston shooter. But there's also another way to look at it. Do people feel terrorized? When Fox News asks if churchgoers are safe, it's just about one shooting. When the congregants of the Emanuel AME Church ask it, there's a century and a half behind the question of
after the Charleston shooting, FBI Director James Comey came out and declared that it was not an act of terrorism. Really, let's hear him out. I wouldn't because of the way we define terrorism under the law. Terrorism is an act of violence done or threatened to, uh, in order to try to influence uh, a public body or the citizenry. So it's more of a political act. And again, based on what I know so far, I don't see it as a political act. So he didn't want to influence public citizenry. Really, we'll go back to that. It wasn't a political act. Really. That's interesting. Look at all these pictures of Dylan Roof. Okay, there he is carrying the Confederate flag, more Confederate flag. It seems like he's making a political point. And then look, him standing on the American flag. If a jihadi was doing that, that would seem like a political point, wouldn't it? How about burning the American flag? If a Muslim terrorist was doing that, I'm sure that that would be considered political, wouldn't it? Oh, but if it's a racist who's doing it, who's doing it for white rights, why is that not political? In fact, the local station K4 said that they had talked to his roommate, and the roommate explained that he had a six-month plan to do something crazy in order to start a race war. Oh, so he wanted to affect the public citizenry. But yet, it's not terrorism. By the way, uh, he told this to his roommate. His roommate, of course, not under investigation. Anybody that the Zarniev brothers talked to in any way, all under investigation. I'm not saying the Zarniev guys shouldn't have been under investigation, but why does the roommate know about a race war and we're not investigating him. It's interesting how different things are treated differently in this country. And K4 continues, they say, by telling authorities his aim, Roof admitted he attacked unarmed civilians for political purposes in an act of terror. But still in America, if you're white, if you're more importantly, if you're right wing, it's never an act of terrorism. An act of terrorism is only for political things we care about, we can use for our own political purposes. Oh, a Muslim did the attack, let's invade Iraq! Yes, let's go get him! That's politics we like, that's why we call you terrorists. A right-winger does it, well, we can't attack the right-wingers, they run this country. So, shh, not terrorism. Finally, let's listen to Dylan Roof and what he wrote in his manifesto to find out if he had political purposes. He says, quote, I have no choice. I'm not in the position to alone go into the ghetto and fight. I choose Charleston because it is most historic city in my state and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. In other words, I am going to attack these unarmed civilians so that I can rouse people up into action and also so that he could terrify the black citizens. Pretty much the dictionary definition of terrorism. And let's note for the record here in one final irony, this guy who thought he was so brave, and that's why he started the fight, in the beginning said, well, it's not like I can go to the ghetto and fight. There someone might oppose me. He could only muster up the courage to attack people who couldn't fight back in a church. That's what a terrorist actually does. Sounds exactly like terrorism to me. I, 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 am a There's been a lot of noise, 
asking why government officials from the Charleston police chief to the head of the FBI to President Obama all refused to call Charleston shooter Dylan Roof a terrorist. Listening closely to their answers should make us wonder whether that's really a good idea. As the FBI director explained, the term terrorist has a very specific legal meaning in the United States. Legally, a terrorist is somebody aiming to influence or change government or corporate policies by breaking the law. By that definition, Dylan Roof, who simply wanted to kill as many black people as he could, is not a terrorist because the willingness to kill a lot of black people is not a change in corporate or governmental policy. Killing lots of black folks has been business as usual ever since Europeans landed in the New World half a thousand years ago. The Charleston shooter is a deranged kook, though, because unlike the Koch brothers or R.J. Reynolds, Edna Insurance, Bank of America, United Front, U.S. Steel, or the Massachusetts Bay Company, all of whom filled cemeteries and raked in billions, Dylan Roof did his handful of bodies for free. On the other hand, if you or I take a picture of or write a description for publication about what goes on in a food, agricultural, or animal processing facility, or if you've been protesting the leaky oil pipelines and bomb trains that wind through thousands of communities, the FBI and federally funded fusion centers have no trouble designating you as an actual or potential terrorist, or what they call an eco-terrorist. The Black Lives Matter folks who break the law blocking traffic also fit the FBI's director's definition of terrorism quite neatly. And right now, Chelsea Manning is doing 35 years in federal prison for espionage, aiding and abetting terrorism by releasing video of U.S. soldiers murdering Iraqi civilians and by handing over cable traffic showing everything from U.S. State Department intervention to keep Haitian wages low to secret U.S. bombing campaigns, to U.S. torture and mercenary companies trafficking in children, and more to WikiLeaks, which, also a big supporter of terrorism, distributed them to news outlets around the world. The terms terrorist and terrorism have never been our words. They have always been deployed by the oppressor against us. The first time I recall hearing about terrorists and terrorism were back in the 1970s when the white colonial regimes of Angola, Mozambique, and Rhodesia called the black Africans who took arms against them and fought for their people's freedom terrorists and declared that they were on the front lines of a global war on terror. Charleston shooter Dylan Roof wore their flag, a Rhodesian flag, on his jacket. The poor and oppressed have never had the privilege of deciding who was and who was not a terrorist because the terrorist has always been a handy construction of the rich and powerful, a construction that justifies homeland security departments, militarized policing, and a country with 5% of the world's population spending half the world's military budget on its so-called global war on terror. Our government needs terrorism and terrorists to justify itself so badly that FBI and other police agencies constantly manufacture terrorist plots in which they ensnare the ignorant and the unwary. So let's get real about this. If breaking the law to change government or corporate policy makes you a terrorist, Martin Luther King, Chelsea Mannix, WikiLeaks Julian Assange, anti-pipeline activists, 
and Black Lives Matter protesters blocking streets and roads, and maybe even Boondock's character and self-confessed domestic terrorist Huey Freeman all passed the test. Dylan Roof, who wants to keep things pretty much the way they already are, only more so, does not. Unfortunately, we have to begin in South Carolina, where on Wednesday, nine people were tragically killed at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. It was yet another senseless, horrific act of violence. And even the president seemed tired of this depressingly familiar routine. Now is the time for mourning and for healing. But let's be clear. At some point, we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. And it is in our power to do something about it. I say that recognizing the politics in this town uh, foreclose a lot of those avenues right now. And at some point, it's going to be important for the American people to come to grips with it. He sounds completely defeated. Which is understandable. He's made more than a dozen statements about mass shootings in his presidency so far, and nothing has been done. But, but it's still hard not to feel disillusioned watching the most powerful man in the world sound so hopeless. It's like seeing your father cry for the first time. Or, or catching a department store Santa getting into his Toyota Tercel. <laughs> or, or seeing your high school English teacher at the grocery store with a shopping cart full of 14 lean cuisine lasagnas. Mr. Greenblatt, are those all for you? You're taught us to be courageous, but you won't even try e-harmony. This is devastating. I'm devastated, Mr. G. Look, it is pretty clear nothing is going to be done about how this tragedy was committed, which might ex explain why some have focused on a symbol associated with why it happened. Because in the wake of this racially motivated shooting, some people found one thing especially galling. The American flag, the state flag, that is at, those are at half-staff. The Confederate flag, that has not been lowered at all. That's right. The Confederate battle flag was flying at full staff in front of the state capitol. Although, perhaps the bigger question is why it was flying at any staff at all. <laughs> the, the Confederate flag is one of those symbols that should really only be seen on T-shirts, belt buckles and bumper stickers to help the rest of us identify the worst people in the world. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, is that a... Leanne, thanks for coming in. The nanny position has already been filled. Which is not to say the flag does not have passionate defenders in South Carolina. And that may be why politicians there go through comical contortions to avoid criticizing it. Is it time to stop flying the Confederate flag? Well, at the end of the day, it's time for people in South Carolina to, to revisit that decision would be fine with me. But this is part of who we are. The flag represents to some people uh, a civil war, and that was the symbol of one side to others. It's a racist symbol, and it's been used by people. It's been used in a racist way. Yeah. 
Yeah, it has. In fact, I believe the first time the Confederate flag was used in a racist way was the exact second they finished sewing the very first one. It was around that time. Now, to be somewhat fair here, to be somewhat fair, lowering the flag outside the state capitol is a little more difficult than it sounds. The flag cannot be lowered um, for any reason because it is affixed to that pole. It can't be raised or lowered. And if that flag is to be removed or lowered or anything done to it, you have to get, uh, I think it's two-thirds okay. uh, majority vote in each right. chamber of the state assembly to do it. Yeah, it needs a two-thirds vote. They were originally going to make it three-fifths, but even they thought that might be a bit on the nose. Just a bit on the nose. Now look, look South Carolina. And indeed, any state that flies this flag, even as part of their actual state flag, Mississippi, holy shit! <laughs> now might be a great time, out of respect not just for the events of this week, but for the events of the past several centuries, to take that vote and lower the flag down to half-staff. And then, when it's at half-staff, why not keep lowering it all the way down, and once you're holding it in your hands, take it off the flagpole completely, fold it, or don't bother, put it in a box, label it bad flag, and put it somewhere no one can see it. Just a thought. Just, just a simple Southland, land of cotton and loam. Losers, got to have a place to call home. Secession, well, it's the source of our pride Cause our kinfolk were on the losing side Yeah, our kinfolk were on the losing side Oh, the stars and bars will never be forgot On our state flag, the X marks the spot It took bravery to fight for slavery That's how we're inclined Cause we're just the losing kind Always left behind Cause we're just the losing There's a Facebook post that went viral today, getting more than 50,000 shares. It features an image of the Confederate battle flag with the words, If this flag offends you, you need a history lesson. Now, it's true, people need a history lesson about that flag, but it's certainly not the lesson offered by the author of that Facebook post. First off, when the Confederate states seceded in 1861, they didn't adopt the flag we now associate with the Confederacy. The first official flag of the Confederacy was this, which resembled the American flag and had stars added as states left the Union. This flag we know today was initially the battle flag of one of the armies of the Confederacy, the Army of Northern Virginia, commanded, of course, by Robert E. Lee. Battle flag was incorporated in later versions of the official Confederate flag, including this one, with the battle flag and a sea of white, which was literally dubbed the white man's flag by its creator. Think about that for a second. After the war ended in 1865, the Confederate flags were mostly put away, though they popped up occasionally at memorials and sporting events. And the battle flag was incorporated into the Mississippi state flag in 1894 as Reconstruction was coming to a close. But for the most part, the battle flag itself was not prominently in use as a political symbol until 1948, more than 80 years after the war ended, when it resurfaced for a very specific reason. In opposition to Harry Truman's efforts to provide equality for African Americans, which included desegregation of the armed forces. 
At the 1948 Democratic National Convention, a coalition of segregationists, Southern Democrats, known as the Dixiecrats, rebelled against Truman and embraced the Confederate battle flag as their emblem of revolt. Eventually, holding their own convention where the battle flag served as their segregationist symbol and where South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond was nominated for the presidency. It is another effort on the part of the president to dominate the country by force and to put into effect these uncalled for and these damnable proposals he has recommended under the guise of so-called civil rights. And I tell you, the American people from one side or the other had, a, had better wake up and oppose such a program. Confederate battle flag was quickly embraced by the Ku Klux Klan and other racist organizations and became a primary symbol of opposition to the civil rights movement. In 1956, that's two years after Brown versus Board of Education decision to segregating schools, that's when Georgia incorporated the Confederate battle flag into its state flag, where it remained until 2001. It was five years later, in 1961, as those civil rights battles raged, that South Carolina hoisted the battle flag above its state capital. The notion that the Confederate battle flag is simply a symbol of Southern history and pride, somehow divorced from racism, is directly contradicted by its appropriation as the primary symbol of opposition to the civil rights movement. To claim otherwise is to ignore history, not to celebrate it. Timothy Wise is a, an essayist, an educator, and author of White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. Good to have you on our program. Thank you for having me. We heard uh, Joshua Dubois talk about uh, the need, he says, he sees, uh, for a white cultural dialogue. Okay, you're white like me. Uh, what should we be talking about? Well, I, I doubt that I've been empowered by my fellow white brothers and sisters to speak for all of us. but uh, <laughs> nor, nor have I. <laughs> right, but I will say, um, I, I think that, uh, that Joshua's statement and his piece, I read it the other day, uh, quite on the money. I mean, I think that too often times we pathologize the other, so to speak, that is to say the racial other, the non-dominant group, the religious other, the non-dominant group, instead of looking at the at the dominant culture. And I think we've seen some of that in the wake of this horrible massacre. Uh, just for example, Nikki Haley, Governor Haley's comment that Dylan Roof had a twisted and sick interpretation of the Confederacy. Actually, that's not true. He understood it probably better than she does and better than an awful lot of white Americans and white Southerners, and I am both of those things, do. I think there's still far too many, for instance, who think that Dylan Roof is an outlier. Now, in terms of his violence and, and the evil of this particular act, of course, most folks don't do that, thankfully. But the reality is that the racism that animated him, number one, was indeed the cornerstone of the Confederate government. That, according to the vice president, Alexander Stevens, of that system himself said that. Uh, and it really has been woven into the fabric of the culture, not black culture, not brown culture, not people of color culture, but the culture of the dominant group, white supremacy, um, though overtly not always expressed in the way it was certainly 50 and 100 years ago, is really not that 
much of an outlier. It is central to the American experiment. And until white Americans are prepared to address that honestly and openly, we're going to be in trouble. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, several years ago, there was an article in my hometown paper in Nashville about a program that had been created for uh, folks getting their GED. So these were folks going back to get their, their GED, their high school diploma, so to speak. And this particular program was one that was intended to teach tolerance. Now, that's fine. I suppose tolerance certainly better than the opposite. But the interesting thing about the curriculum they were using, and this had been developed by the state, was that the examples they used of intolerance to try to teach this lesson all had to do with Nazi Germany, all had to do with the Holocaust of European Jewry. Now, as someone who is Jewish, I get the importance of that, but I find it supremely ironic that as we are trying to teach people about tolerance and acceptance and not collaborating with evil, that we felt the need to go more than a half century back and all the way across the globe to find an example of the racism and the intolerance that we were trying to inoculate folks against. It seems to me, until we are prepared to look at our own history and the way that history continues to haunt us in the present, those of us in the dominant culture are going to be creating more Dylan Roots, not fewer. Now let me uh, read to you the comments of Senator Lee Bright of South Carolina. He didn't want to come on the air until after the funerals, he said. Uh, but he says that in South Carolina, we know what this flag, of course, there's been much dispute about the Confederate flag, symbolizes. He says, resistance against a federal centralized power that far overreached its constitutional limits. It proudly symbolizes states' rights and constitutional liberties. You're saying it's something else. Well, that's just an absolute fabrication. This individual is either being disingenuous or he's completely ignorant as to the truth of the flag and the cause for which it flew. Look, the, the folks in South Carolina, when they broke away from the Union, they made it exceedingly clear why they had done it. You can read the declaration of causes that were issued uh, at the time, and there is no discussion about states' rights in the abstract. That was language that was added in the 1890s during the whole movement of, movement of the lost cause, trying to resurrect neo-Confederacy. They said that it was about white supremacy and the institution of slavery, which they felt were threatened by the election of the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. They were upset that the North, for instance, was not enforcing the fugitive slave laws, and they were angry that if you know enslaved persons managed to run away, that they weren't being sent back to their masters. That's what they said. So we can concoct all kinds of after-the-fact lies. We can say, if we wish, that the soldiers of the Confederacy were fighting for cornbread and the best mint julep recipe. That won't make it true. What we know is what the people at the time said. And if we're not prepared to be honest about that, then we are not going to be able to move forward and have real healing in this country, let alone racial equity. Marcus McKenzie, Wichita Falls, Texas. I just got to say, man, I'm tired, man. I'm tired. I'm tired of all this BS conversations that are going on in this world about race, and then nobody's actually hitting the, having a real one. They would rather say, well, black people did this, well, black people did that. What do you think? You know, they, they, they use this, this smoke and mirror technique in the media 
to get people distracted from the actual issue and have them get outraged on stuff so they can exploit their political views that they have on these news stations. And it's, and it's ignore and it's, it's crazy. It's frustrating. Sometimes you just want to sit in the dark room and just stare at the TV while it's playing. And hopefully you wait until somebody puts out an actual statement that makes some sense, you know? But no, no, no. We want to have a, a conversation about gun violence. We want to have a conversation about, is it a war in Christianity? No, no. All these BS conversations that we continue to have, and people like you, Twib, Young Turks, they're, they're trying to have an actual conversation, but they have to actually spend their time unwinding the crazy of all this stuff that gets put out there in the media. And there's people who are out there who are believing this stuff because it supports their views. It offends them the least instead of actually being confronted with actual issues. This affects my life day in and day out. I want some people just to sit down and think and just say, man, there are people out there who hate me just because I'm black. That's crazy. Just because I'm black. You think I'm stupid. You think I'm dangerous. You think I'm violent. You think I'm a thug. You think I'm this. But you never actually sat down and have a conversation with me and think you to know who I actually am. But you rather get your information off of TV. You rather let a number dictate how you treat somebody in a race, like that you get from Fox News, than actually sit down and have a conversation with somebody and find out for yourself. And don't even get me started on this Confederate flag debate. I've been dealing with that shit since high school. Going to an all-white school, being the only black person in your class since middle school. And you sit around and you have to listen to these debates over people defending the Confederate flag saying it's about heritage. What heritage? And then those same people who want to defend that flag want to call, jump around here and say, oh, I support the troops. I'm all for America. But did you forget that there's black and African-American people who did fight in this, for this country, for your freedoms just as well? For example, I had a funeral. My brother just passed away in a car accident. My grandma comes in to visit. Lady worked in the Pentagon. Really high, made it highly ranked in the military. And she's sitting here in my living room while these kids from my school, you know, good people, come in here with Confederate flags on their t-shirts, on their hats, on their belt buckles, and think nothing of it. But this is a lady who I'm speaking of, my grandma, who actually had encounters with the Klan, you know, who actually had to deal with the segregation of, of that time. But do they care how she feels about the flag? No. All they want to see is it's cool to look, it, it's cool to wear, and it shows how much of a southerner I am. Nah. We can't have a real conversation about anything. And you know what's so upsetting the most? We know at the end of all this, everybody's just going to forget about it and ignore it. Honestly, I'm sorry. That's how I feel, huh? You have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on your voice memo app on your phone and email it to j at bestoftheleft.com or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, you can probably tell this was a gigantic show. I tried to squeeze in as much as I possibly could. However, I'm still left with some some excellent content I really wish I could have squeezed in. If you're familiar with the Rachel Dolezal story, you probably know I could have made one or two entire episodes just on that story by itself easily. Uh, but I, you know, I wanted to get in the facts, I wanted to get in the 
absolute best comments and responses to that story that explain what the problem is. But what I ended up missing and not being able to put in was, I mean, I have about 30 minutes of excellent content from people of color responding to Rachel Dolezal and expressing an enormous amount of pain and frustration and hurt over that story. And, and it doesn't necessarily explain what the problem is, but it, it really demonstrates really well the effects of the problem. And just the way the production of this episode worked out, I, I could not figure out how to fit them in. So I'm linking to those in the show notes of this episode. They're going to be posted separately. They're absolutely just as good and worthwhile as everything I would normally put in the show. So I would highly encourage you to go check those out. Just go to the show notes of this episode, and each one of those will be prominently linked. Uh, one is from This Week in Blackness, and the other is from a podcast called The Read. So I hope you check those out. Please keep the comments coming in. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained